virtual fashion shows, AI design dresses, and AR-powered try-ons. In this series, we take a closer look at the technologies changing fashion. Each episode, we speak to those in the know, tech people who are influencing fashion and fashion people who are using tech in new ways. We look at what's happening now and what's happening next. I'm Megan McDowell, and this is The Tech Edit by Vogue Business. The Tech Edit by Vogue Business is brought to you in association with PayPal Credit, helping your customers buy now and pay over time. Go to paypal.com forward slash PayPal Credit to learn more. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The Tech Edit by Vogue Business. I'm your host, Megan McDowell. As innovation editor, my job is to identify the most important technologies impacting fashion and retail. This series will provide a closer look at the most exciting innovations on my radar, and we'll hear directly from those leading the charge. Today, we'll provide a bird's eye view of some of the shifts taking place. In each subsequent episode, I'll be diving into one theme in detail. I'm excited to say that I'm joined by three of the most important authorities on the future. We have tech and media analyst Benedict Evans, retail investor Kirsten Green, who is founder and managing partner at Forerunner Ventures, and Matthew Drinkwater, head of the Fashion Innovation Agency at the London College of Fashion. Welcome, and thank you all so much for joining me on the Tech Edit. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I think, Benedict, I'll start with you. You're sort of known for this eponymous newsletter that that analyzes the week's most influential headlines sort of across industries. So you're not necessarily focused on fashion, but what are you seeing now? I know so many of us are in a lockdown. This is really forcing interesting adoption of new behaviors. What are your thoughts on this sort of watershed moment? So I think it's kind of interesting that this is happening now, first of all, because kind of in January, we were already at a moment where everyone was online and willing to do everything online. We kind of reached that point after 20 years of people saying, well, remember, not everybody has broadband. Remember, not everyone has a PC. Remember, not everyone has a smartphone. 83% of American teenagers have an iPhone. There's this great study of dating in the US. In 2017, 40% of new relationships were formed inside an app. So it's probably over 50% now. And so we kind of reached a point that everyone was online, not literally everyone, but like 80, 90% of people are online and ready to do anything online. Among other things, everyone has a device with broadband and a video camera. So you can do a global pop concert with video, um, with the artist's can with the artist's phones. And so that was January. And now everyone doesn't have a choice. Everyone has to try and do everything online. So we're in this period of forced adoption, forced experimentation, forced acceleration, where everyone has to try and do everything online or, of course, just not do it. And we'll see what works, what can be made to work online, what can be made to work as a video call. What actually turns out to work as something else, like maybe it doesn't need to be a call, maybe it can go into some other digital form. And of course, which things don't stick and which things will go back to being done in person when we all get out of here. It's so funny because, you know, for my whole career, a lot of our conversations are on phone calls, right? But in the past few months, for some reason, they're miraculously turning into video calls. <laughs> and I, like people are assuming now that video is the new normal, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it, it almost kind of happened without us realizing that, you know, when you when yeah. we saw that concert, suddenly you realize, oh, hang on a second, and everybody has video now. And the same thing as we've seen, we've you know, been watching TV news in the last month, suddenly all the interviews are being done remotely by video call, and suddenly you realize, oh, actually everybody does have this now. 
And even sort of, as I said, five years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. And we, we almost kind of weren't using it for that. And now we suddenly realize that we can. And I think, as I said, everything gets forced into that mode. Not everything necessarily will work. Like if you're really trying to form a human connection and, and understand somebody, then, then video might not work. But there's also kind of the other side of that, that, you know, that's the old joke, this meeting could have been a call and this call could have been an email. <laughs> How many of the things that are, we're doing this video will decide, actually, that's better as a Slack chat. It's better as an update in some system. It's better as an updated file. It's better as something done in Figma or Frame.io or whatever your collaborative platform is. I mean, I think there's a sort of, there's an old kind of framing here that whenever you get a new tool, you start by forcing the tool to fit the way you do things. And then over time, you realize that you can change how you do things to fit the tool. So you start by printing your emails. Right. And then you realize, actually, I can do this differently. I don't need to do that old thing anymore. I can do the whole job in a different way. You mentioned a concert. Tell us a little bit about which one you're referring to, because I know there have been a number of different things I've seen online. So this is the, the One World concert that was curated by Lady Gaga that, you know, by, that was originally going to be a live concert, a live event. And it shifted virtual. Most of the artists recorded themselves with their own devices, and it was then edited entirely remotely. All of the people working on the editing and the production were all remote. It was all using Frame.io and a bunch of other tools. And that kind of crept up on us. You know, I don't think we quite realized, hang on, the Rolling, everyone in the Rolling Stones can do a video conference. It just became normal without us noticing. So one thing I think is interesting, though, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is that what about fashion and retail who stands to gain or who sees an opportunity and who who might be worried when consumers realize they don't need perhaps a certain brand or a certain behavior, right? So how many, how many different ways can one, one answer this? I mean, I think, first of all, clearly there's a lockdown period right now. And then at in whatever it is, 6, 12, 24 months time, we go through some sort of phased exit and we are back out on the street kind of sort of living our lives again. And at the moment, we're all being we're breaking old habits and forming new habits. You know, everyone who has never bought makeup online is now buying makeup online. Everyone who has not bought fashion or not bought that particular kind of thing online, if they need it, they're now buying it online or they're not going to buy a summer wardrobe because they're going to be locked inside. I think as we exit from this, there's a bunch of kind of questions around e-commerce really for the last 25 years, which is that there's some parts of retail are essentially logistics. You know that you need that thing and you just go and get it. And what's the most effective way for you to get that thing? And there's other parts of retail that are about recommendation, service, experience, discovery, you know, whether it's just trying it on or, you know, going and looking at 50 things to decide what you want. And the internet has always been much better at retailers logistics because it's basically a database than at retailers service and experience. And kind of the Amazon project for the last 20 years has been to convert things into logistics. And every other kind of retail, every other kind of e-commerce, in a sense, has been trying to create new experiences around how you might discover that, whether that's Warby Parker, which is clearly not just Amazon for glasses, or all the kind of box and subscription services, they're kind of different ways of trying to work out, well, how would you create a discovery and service experience online, as opposed to going into a physical store. You know, if you live in New York or, or, or London or Los Angeles, in a sense, you always had access to that amazing retail, but there's an awful lot of people who didn't. And what Amazon did was it meant you could get whatever was in the best bookshop in the world if you didn't live in a big city. But it never let you shop the way you would shop in, in that bookshop. You know, the internet lets you buy whatever you can buy in New York or London or Paris, but it doesn't never let you shop the way you would shop in New York or London or Paris. And so kind of the other half of the emergence of e-commerce is how you solve that kind of side of the equation. 
and how you bring kind of broader kinds of experiences to buying online. Right. And and it's so interesting you mentioned Warby Parker because in a minute we're going to talk to Kirsten and that is one of her her investments in her portfolios. So I'm so curious to hear what her latest is. But before we do, I think it's interesting what you said about this investment in the the physical retail experience. I think luxury, you go into the store and every little detail is is really thought out and so perfectly executed. Do you think that this will force brands to kind of apply that same investment and attention to their online or their digital experience, whatever that is? I think there's been sort of an an ongoing journey of discovery here, particularly in fashion from, you know, it wasn't very long ago that the founders of top tier global names would say, I'm not being on the internet, that's just porn. And that was like this decade. This is 1990. Today, I think an awful lot of brands would happily spend an hour arguing about what kind of brass you use for the countertop and what the curtains look like Mm -hmm. in the changing room. But it would never occur to them to wonder what the checkout experience looks like. And it has never occurred to them that 50% of the times you put a credit card into their site, the site rejects it for a stupid reason. There's a sort of blindness to seeing what the online retail experience looks like and understanding that that's as much an important a part of your experience as the physical retail experience might look like. And I think, you know, a lot of retailers kind of halfway there. I mean, I think we had a conversation with you the other day. I talked about buying from an Italian menswear brand where the website only allows you to add one of each item. If you try and add two of that shirt, the website crashes and switches from buying in pounds in English to buying in euros in Italian with an empty shopping cart. Like, Crazy. And this is, a, this is a brand that puts enormous effort and thought into what their stores look like, but they've clearly never tried to buy on their own website. That's crazy. Well, Kirsten, tell us what you're seeing. In addition to Warby Parker, some of your most iconic investments include Dollar Shave Club and Glossier and so many others. What are you seeing in the immediate term as far as your portfolio of brands, any technologies that are especially crucial at this time when we are so many of us working from home, doing everything digitally? Yeah. So much of what Benedict just shared really resonates with me and and honestly has been an underpinning of our investment thesis for the last decade, which is, you know, we've been on a journey of kind of embracing digital commerce, but starting Mm -hmm. to imagine a more fluid connection between online and offline. You know, a lot of that has come from the upstart companies that needed to just embrace the moment and the day and think about the future to create any relevancy for themselves, while others, and it's an an ordinary way to behave is like you resist change, particularly if something you've been doing has been tried and true for a long time. I think what is really um, exciting actually about this moment, a silver lining, if you will, is that it's a time that I think there's a bit more freedom in trying new things. There's a need to try new things. And there's almost just like permission kind of broadly to just experiment a little more and not be so caught up in kind of overthinking or managing the details of every last bit of a rollout plan, or we just need to act with some urgency to meet the moment. And a lot of what we're seeing right now is an acceleration of things that were increasingly relevant before this moment happened. So I think, you know, Benedict started his comments by talking about video, and I sort of have that at the top of my list too. I think that that is something that brands and companies have been experimenting with, either as an ad unit or as a way to connect with consumers on their site. 
And when we suddenly take the offline experience, the one-to-one off the table, people are thinking about, okay, where do I recreate that connection on my site and how can I use video to my advantage? We have a company in our portfolio um, called Cup, which focuses on lingerie. And they um, you know, have been trying to tell a story about fit, both in terms of how their products are better fit, as well as how a person can understand what the right fit is for them. And we had experimented with video earlier, but in the last you know, two or three months, like the willingness of the user to engage in video has really kind of met the capability that the companies put forward. And so it's this dance between companies experimenting with things and consumers being open to doing it. I feel like that is you know, something that is happening right now at an accelerated pace. There's a lot of focus right now, also another dimension of bringing connection to life on text messaging. That's not new to all of us as people interacting with our friends, but how do you embrace that interacting with brands? And I think that many of them were dabbling with it. I think they're really kind of embracing it as a way to connect directly right now with some great success when people are in that mode and and willing and want the engagement All things community-related are relevant and important, so this is not as much tech as it is just thinking through kind of... Because business can act in real time just like people can, there's this calling to meet the moment with the right sort of messaging and the right sort of campaign and the right sort of offering and trying to figure out, you know, what is right for your brand, what's the right articulation of your view on things, and how do you show your empathy? (laughs) Instead of considering it for six months for the next fall campaign, it's kind of just being real and jumping on it right now. And then there's things like point-of-sale loans, different payment methods. That's something, too, that people had been experimenting with, but I think, you know, kind of maybe acting faster to, to bring that to life on the site. You know, the things that Benedict mentioned about paying attention to the checkout details. I think all of those things are important. The point of sale loan is one, just all the details of the vigil interface, you know, and really thinking, okay, if I don't have the other outlets to bring my brand to life, like where are the ways in which you can add that little extra onto the site? And I think having, you know, getting back to an earlier comment, having that moment where it's about meeting the moment more than it is about the perfection of how you do it is something business should embrace right now. Go try it. You've got a pass to try it. In fact, people are inviting you to try it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the customer is understanding now because I think so much in fashion brands, there is this pressure to be perfect, especially higher end brands. Everything has to be perfect. But in technology, that's sort of the opposite approach, right? Like usually you try and you push it out there and you update it as you go. So it's it's interesting now that this, this kind of does provide that opportunity for experimentation. I know there's a lot of customer-facing innovations happening now. Are there any sort of behind-the-scenes, I don't know whether it's like supply chain or... Supply chain is on everyone's mind, you know? Yeah, so what about this? They're typically less sexy, but they're also really important to fashion. They're incredibly important, you know, and I think there's, there's two kind of major pillars in that consideration. One is just sort of the diversity of your supply chain and how that can serve as an advantage, particularly when right now we sort of have a a rolling threat and things are different in different areas. And then there's just how do you get something from point A to point B and navigating that. And, you know, that obviously as more packages have been moving, that's something that most companies have been kind of on a journey to get the right logistics as things have been evolving and as they've been growing. 
But this is a moment where it's like, well, what does the warehouse of the future look like? Like, is it a place where we should have people working in those kind of quarters? Is there more automation that we can bring into it? I think that, you know, before that sounded like a good idea. But again, unless there's that urgency or that need, it often is a a CapEx event that maybe can be pushed down the road. And I'm imagining this is getting pulled up in people's roadmap of areas for investment for sure. Absolutely. And also there's been so much change in the behavior. I mean, I think this idea of like life cycle retailing where you buy new, you rent new, you buy used, you buy clothes out. You can almost follow an item kind of through a whole journey of that. That requires, you know, a reimagination of the logistics side too. And right now it's happening in silos where you have businesses that are focused on one of those lanes. But I kind of imagine a future where there's more than a few businesses that offer that whole kind of assortment and ways to engage with their businesses. And that will require some reimagination of the supply chain, obviously, as well. Absolutely. No, I think it's it's so interesting to think about what we've been typically calling circular economy, but like this reverse logistics and returns and different ways of thinking instead of just one direction. But that brings me to one thing I want to ask Benedict. Speaking of logistics, obviously, Amazon has sort of forced the conversation or forced the industry forward. I mean, that's their claim to fame. There have been thoughts on what they could offer for luxury and if they might provide their technology to a luxury brand where, you know, on the front end, from the customer's point of view, it looks like it's branded, but on the back end, under the hood, it's all Amazon. Do you think that could work? What are your thoughts there? There's an old cliche about e-commerce, that e-commerce has infinite shelf space. And I think that's not quite right for Amazon. Mm -hmm. Amazon has one shelf that's infinitely long. And so everything that they do has to fit into that one shelf. It has to fit into the same commodity purchasing journey, the same commodity logistics model, the same commodity um, e-commerce process. It's kind of sort of entertaining to try and buy something specific like makeup or children's shoes on Amazon because you can see they've built the customer experience, but you poke at it once or twice and it disintegrates. And you realize that, you know, a red shoe in size five is a completely different shoe from a green shoe in size five, which is different from size four. And there's no sense that those are actually the same product with variants. And the problem is that for them to build something that would understand that, they would have to build that for everything. And then they wouldn't be able to add in new categories indefinitely. They wouldn't be able to scale indefinitely. Suddenly, they'd have a different shelf for every category, as opposed to having one shelf that's an infinite length. And, you know, they'd have to become kind of a different company in order to build kind of specific experiences for specific kinds of retailing. So that's one point. I think the second question would be, as a luxury retailer, what is it that you want from Amazon? Do you want them to ship the product the next day in a brown cardboard box and deliver it in an Amazon Prime van along with a back packet of shoe polish (laughs) and some toilet paper? Because they can do that. But that's not really what you want. Um, If you want something completely different and custom, well, then that's not Amazon. That's somebody else or that's Ukes or something. But as soon as you start asking for that, then all the advantages of kind of infinite scalability that Amazon brings don't really apply in the same way anymore. And you need to do something specific and something custom. Kirsten, any thoughts there if Amazon and luxury can work together? I mean, I think that is 100% right, that it comes down to personalization in so many ways. And can you create a really connected experience? You know, there are two 
kinds of shopping. They're shopping for like the essentials and the needs and they're shopping for discretionary things. And I think they're very different. And I think that a lot of discretionary spending has an element of entertainment and and certainly delight to it. And part of it is the journey. Part of it is the courtship that happens around shopping. It's It gives you an opportunity to kind of live beyond the monotony of every day and the tasking of just getting something done and touch on a little bit of fantasy. And to take all of that out of the shopping experience really compromises, I mean, I, I think for the person, just, you know, the whole the whole experience of what it means to buy a special luxury item. To circle back on that, Amazon is, you want to think of Amazon as Walmart or as Sears. And you could say, could could Walmart create you know, dedicated boutiques across middle America to sell premium luxury goods? Could they do a partnership with Colette or Dice Corsi Como and roll out branches of that in Milwaukee? <laughs> well, y- no, not really, because that's not <laughs> what they are. And they, it would be kind of, wouldn't make a huge amount of sense from anybody's perspective to try and do that. I feel like we could talk about this forever, but... Matthew, I want to get to you because Kirsten mentioned this idea of fantasy and imagination and creativity. And your work is so much focused on that as the head of fashion innovation agency at the London College of Fashion. I I kind of refer to you as the black ops of fashion tech. So you're kind of behind the scenes running these amazing pilots for fashion brands that is probably five years ahead where most people are thinking. So what has your work been like lately? Has your phone been ringing off the hook? We've been kind of busy. Um, yeah, <laughs> That's great. It's, it's one of those moments where you feel a little bit guilty to say that things have been good. I think what I would say is that for fashion and retail, what's happened has, from our perspective, been a bit of a told you so moment. I think, mm. you know, I, I set up the team at the college seven years ago with this lovely remit to explore any kind of emerging technology and its impact on the industry. And we started building this pathway to digitizing every part of the industry from creation to showcasing and retailing. And some of the concepts and pilots that we were building, I think people would begin to raise their eyebrows a little bit and say, yeah, I'm not convinced that people are going to have the need or the want to experience a fashion show virtually or could even begin to imagine what a concept like digital fashion could even mean. And yet, and yet, here we are, almost overnight, as Benedict said, that forced behavioural change. And Mm. what we had assumed would take another decade or so for the technology to come through to allow us to truly demonstrate the real potential for the business models that we were proposing, suddenly retail stores are closed everywhere and retailers and brands are beginning to have to think beyond what a store or a website could offer. One thing we've talked about a little bit is this idea of virtual events and a concert or, you know, something else Mm. like that. Video, I know the fashion industry is really thinking how to approach Fashion Week and other fashion events. What are you seeing there? Any technologies on your radar or projects you think have offered a cue as to what this might look like? Yeah, I mean, I think what you'll see, fashion shows cannot take place. So that is, again, that forced behavioural change that the way in which fashion would have communicated itself coming up in June and then again in September cannot happen. So what is immediately available to brands to do that? And kind of Benedict talked about music being one way and live streaming or streaming and then editing 
through post-production are, are ways that are very simple, can be done. I think what we had been looking at and had been working in for so long is complete virtual production and creating entirely virtual experiences from the models themselves to the clothes that they're wearing and mm. removing all of the parameters around the traditional show. Can you, know, you can create something virtually that would be physically impossible to create. And right. So not a carbon copy of what we know. No. And I, I, it's so interesting having this conversation because so much of the behavior, you started the call talking about people wanting to do video calls as default. It's almost literally porting our existing behavior and just dropping it into a video call. Like, right. I, you know, I, I've been in those calls where I have 25 to 30 people on a call and it's like, this doesn't need to happen. And similarly, we simply don't need to take a catwalk that would have existed normally and simply plonk that into virtual reality. We need to begin to think about the impossible. And I think if there's one thing the industry needs is to begin to understand what the tools are, how they might be applied, because that sense of fantasy, that amazing emotional connection that the industry is about. It's about nothing else. Mm -hmm. None of us need anything more. We don't need to buy any more products, but we have to want it. We have to have that sense of desire. And we can use those technologies to create awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping moments. And that's where I want and have wanted to take the industry for a long time. I think one of the, the sort of interesting things to think about here is this is a cultural and social and economic watershed. You know, this is not just another, this is not 9-11. It's not just about unemployment. You know, this will be a fundamental break in all sorts of aspects of culture and society in the same way as, you know, going from hippies and prog rock to punk was or going from punk to the 80s was. There will be a sort of before COVID and after COVID moment that will manifest in all sorts of different ways where in all, and all sorts of different aspects of culture. And I'm sure that will get reflected in, in fashion, both in, you know, the zeitgeist and how people want to feel and what they want to wear, but also in how that gets bought. Because when you take your buying online, you make a very kind of, kind of mechanistic point. When you take your buying online, you don't buy all of the same things, but online, you buy different things. Mm-hmm. And that applied very obviously at the beginning of e-commerce to books, where the distribution of purchasing of books on Amazon looks completely different to the purchasing of books on in traditional bookshops. And I would be astonished if that wasn't the case for Net-A-Porter. And I'm sure that will be the case for all of these other things if you go online, because all of the ways that you discover and think about and, as you say, kind of experience that emotion and delight just works differently and drives different kinds of purchasing decisions and desires. Benedict's completely right. I, I, that discussion we've had on so many occasions where the early examples of virtual reality being used to showcase retailing have been redesigning a store that exists in the real world. And I don't need to see that. I know what a store looks like. Use the tools, understand the tools to create something that goes beyond what exists today. That, that's the, the possibility that lies right in front of us. I love that idea of just being more and more creative instead of just being more efficient. You know, so so many times technology is focused on efficiency, but I love what it can do for creativity. So I understand you have used artificial intelligence more on the creative side to design fashion. Tell us a little bit about that project. Oh, yeah. So we run an AI course in creativity at the college and we 
we are fascinated at the possibility of beginning to change the way that our young designers engage with technology and how they might be able to use it to go beyond what exists today. So in a, a simple example of that is using generative adversarial networks to allow a computer to become a, or a neural network to become a design tool. And so, yeah, we, we have students creating dresses or working collaboratively with a neural network to design dresses and we have also done it to design catwalks as well so taking huge numbers of imagery from existing catwalks to begin to generate models the clothes that they wear and the environment that they're in so that is something that we will continue to see more of particularly as we're we're struggling we cannot get into the college we don't have access to the the workspaces that we would need and yet we do have computers so that is something that we're actively pushing forward. Kirsten, I'd love to hear from you, sort of your crystal ball. We've talked a lot about the immediate term, but what technologies or even experiences, even if you don't know which technology would make it happen, but like, what do you see in the future? What would you love to see happen? Well, I think some of the things that Matthew was just talking about certainly would be fun and relevant in the context of the industry and that need for fantasy and the entertaining aspect of shopping. We're spending a lot of time thinking about kind of bringing experiences to life through digital that are really needed by people. So, you know, on on the area of things like online learning and telehealth, for example, those are two trends that have been unfolding over a period of time. They're obviously having a moment right now because as we've been talking about on this call, for, for many things being adopted, people are at home and they have a need for these things right. in a way that they, they, have they no haven't choice. been before. You know, but I think as people see like, okay, what are the opportunities? You know, what are the shortcomings and where are the things that need to be improved? Where are the opportunities and what's really working and how else can we apply them going forward? I think there's going to continue to be all kinds of opportunity that comes out of that. And I think, you know, even thinking about like telehealth works, you need to connect people to doctors and there needs to be a way to share information either asynchronously or synchronously. That's just a prerequisite to that happening. As you start to see like there's a real need for that. So people will adopt it. People will get you know, over time, more comfortable interacting in those ways, does that spill over into other industries? You know, I think there's been a lot of talk getting back to fashion. There's been a lot of talk over time about kind of that one-to-one salesperson and the importance of that happening in stores and how can you replicate that online? There's been a lot of attempts at it. I don't think it's had any kind of broad adoption really yet, but as consumers get more comfortable with those types of interactions in other places, they'll probably be more willing or interested in those in adjacent areas and tools and technologies will be built to kind of meet it in a way that it feels better and it satisfies whatever that particular industry needs. Totally. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where that goes. I know it's, we say it's a silver lining, but it truly is kind of inspiring innovation and creativity in ways we couldn't have known. Well, I feel like we could talk forever, but we're coming to the end of our episode. So before we go, we've talked a lot about the technologies that we're excited about and that we we understand a little bit, but at the end of every episode, we ask our guests one question, which is, what is the one technology that you still just do not understand? So, Benedict, how about you? 
Oh, well, I think I, there's sort of two answers to that. One of them is quantum, which is on my list of um, right. where I have that sort of bear, bear of very little brain moment where I read it and I think, well, I understand what all those words are and they all seem like grammatically correct sentences, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> I think like somewhat more usefully, the thing that fascinates me for a while is to think about computer vision. Because we've kind of gone for everyone has a camera, image sensors are everywhere. There are billions of image sensors now. And those image sensors get looked at by computers rather than being looked at by people. And so all sorts of things are becoming computer vision questions that didn't seem like they would be computer vision questions. And image sensors become kind of universal inputs and ways of inputting data into systems. And, you know, my, my, as a matter of fact, my mother used to run a trend forecasting business. And I sort of ask myself now, you know, if you're in the fashion business, what would happen if you said, have you seen anything interesting in Milan? And the answer was, well, we've got photographs of everybody who walked in the right area for the last 15 years. And we're seeing this thing appearing now that seems a little bit like that thing people were wearing five years ago. And so I think how much we're going to get out of connecting all of that imagery into analysis and allowing computers, in a sense, to see, I think we're still at the, like, the very, very, very early stages of understanding what that means. We mm. still sort of think that computer vision is about cat pictures, and it's actually about right. <laughs> turning, turning image sensors into sort of universal ways to allow computers to see the world. I love that idea too. I was just, I was fascinated listening to Benedict talked about that, thinking about the power of kind of being able to look back through history in that way and notice changes and, and interpret them. I, I think that's really, that idea is fascinating. Um, I, I'm probably caught up in something that's far more simple than that, which is just all of the touch points that we all create through all of our digital interactions, trying to use those in a way that's actually productive. I'm you know, still really obsessed with this idea of companies really understanding customer journeys, knowing where people, you know, where they first learned about a company or a brand or a product, how they came to you, how they navigated the site. If they bought something, what else was the next thing they were likely to buy? How do we think about bringing them along in that journey? And there's, you know, it's, a, it's an idea that feels like it could be it could be brought to life. I think it's a, you know, it's proving to be a lot harder to do that. There's just so many data points right. and how do you bring them all together in a way where they can be really productive and helpful. And one of the ways that like some part of that is happening that sort of just, I, I, I don't know how to feel about it is that, I don't know <laughs> if anybody else on this call has had that experience, but you're talking about something, you know, to a friend and a conversation, maybe you have your phone on your desk, but you don't necessarily have it on. It's not part of the interaction. You come back to it two hours later and suddenly that product pops up in your, in your Instagram feed. How does, you know, <laughs> who, who, who is the, who is behind that? How is that happening? That's one instance of pulling data, but they've taken it another layer. So Matthew, what about you? Just having spent the last week uh, just s recovering from the experience that was the Travis Scott Fortnite event, um, just the, the potential of what the AR clouds, a metaverse, a magic verse, whatever that digital layer to the physical world is going to be, just the shifting experience that we're going to have as consumers or people visiting events and purchasing digitally, the shift that we're going to see in the next couple of years is going to be so big and the opportunity so massive that sometimes that 
that breadth of opportunity feels enormous. But I think I think that's an exciting and optimistic way to wrap up. I agree. It's been a great conversation. Thank you all so much for joining us for the first episode of the Tech Edit. It's been great having you here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Listen in next week as we kick off our series. We'll take a look at 3D design, how it's being used now, and what it holds for the future. Joining us will be Daniel Greeter, CEO of Tommy Hilfiger Global, and Christine Paulette, who is leading Tommy Hilfiger's switch to digital design, and Amber Sloten, who's a digital fashion designer at The Fabricant. Don't forget to subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on each new episode. You can find the links on Spotify, iTunes, or of course, via the Vogue Business website. For more coverage on the future of fashion and technology, subscribe to my weekly technology edit newsletter at VogueBusiness.com. Our executive producer was Alad John. My name is Megan McDowell, and that was The Tech Edit. Thanks for listening. The Tech Edit by Vogue Business is brought to you in association with PayPal Credit, helping your customers buy now and pay over time. Go to paypal.com forward slash paypal credit to learn more.